0: Welcome to our kickoff for season six. Can you believe this podcast launched five years ago today to this very day, maybe a day or two approximately off. But this week is essentially when I launched District of Conservation. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Gabriella Hoffman. I'm an award-winning outdoor writer. I'm a conservationist. I love to fish. I love to hunt. I own guns, probably do all those activities. And I'm giving you all a bird's eye view into what is happening in and around the nation's capital. I have a lot of insider perspective. I talk to lawmakers on Capitol Hill. I talk to people in state legislatures. I have my eyes and pulse on what is happening conservation-wise all over the country and across the Potomac in Washington, D.C. have a very bird's-eye view of what is happening. there, keeping you all abreast with the bad, the ugly, and oftentimes good stuff that happens in the midst of all this kind of craziness we're seeing in conservation policy, energy, environment, and the like. This season isn't really departing from the previous ones. We're upping the ante with the content we're releasing. I've started to release multiple episodes a week when I'm not really traveling, but you always get an episode a week even when I'm traveling. We're going to continue to do exclusive interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. We're going to, again, wait on these topics that people don't really like to talk about or they're really towing a preservationist line under the guise of conservationism, or even some conservationists are afraid to wade into this because they have to be bipartisan. I don't have to be bipartisan, so I can offer a perspective on things. And two things I want to talk about today, really important. One relates to guidance for a so-called 21st century outdoor recreation blueprint from the Department of Interior, specifically Bureau of Land Management, and an interesting proposal to control feral hogs across the United States because we are inundated with 6 million wild hogs across the United States, mostly in Texas, the southeast, a little bit into the Midwest. And there's a new study from the Texas A&M that offers a chemical solution to curb hog population. I'm kind of skeptical, but we never shy away from these topics. I love dabbling into stuff that people don't like to discuss. So let's take it away with these two topics today to kick off season six. I want to preface my discussion of this 21st century blueprint for outdoor recreation with this. I am not opposed to enhancing outdoor recreation opportunities, expanding access. I'm always on board with that. I am, however, opposed to cheap shots and really virtue signaling type gestures, which are really empty and don't have any meaningful improvements. It's just a way for certain people to check off a box and say, I was doing outreach. I'm reaching out to demographics we haven't talked to or engaged with or politicizing outdoor recreation, which I cannot stand whatsoever. And this is what I'm seeing, unfortunately, with this 21st century blueprint for outdoor recreation from the Bureau of Land Management. I've been highly critical of this BLM. I'm not admiring of the tenor, And the direction that the agency is going in and the greater Department of Interior, I am increasingly opposed to their agenda and I think they're pushing preservationism. They're really divorcing sportsmen and women from the outdoors, from public lands, and they're giving preference to preservationist non-hunters and others who want anglers, hunters, shooting sports enthusiasts off the landscape and not funneling the majority of conservation funds through our contributions through Pittman-Robertson and Dingle johnson Amendment funds. So when I hear of this outreach to enhance opportunities, to reach new people, to be you know, inclusive and not exclusionary, when you have an administration like this, whether it's the BLM or even overarching through the Department of Interior, what have you, cutting off access – Limiting what type of accessories and tools you can use on public lands. Shutting down millions of acres to non-resident hunting in Alaska. Making it increasingly difficult to access shooting sports opportunities. And then they're saying, oh, we're going to expand opportunities for everyone under this blueprint. But let's read more into what this blueprint is. The Blueprint for 21st Century Outdoor Recreation. This is a new blueprint for 21st century outdoor recreation intended to guide investments, partnerships, outreach and program development to respond to current demand and chart a course to meet future needs. Through the blueprint, BLM is establishing a new vision to proactively manage for exceptional and unique recreation experiences that invite all to share in the enjoyment and stewardship of their public lands. Oh, gosh. Just by that statement, I can tell that this is not a serious plan, and it's a way to appropriate more federal spending for lost causes and to advance really divisive political agendas, which will not help to reach to new audiences. And again, you've heard me talk at length about what they're doing to curb access. So you have this grandiose blueprint. We're going to talk more into this momentarily. Just let me vent. You have this grandiose plan to enhance outdoor recreation, yet behind the scenes and even openly, they're limiting your opportunities. They're restricting what you can and cannot do on public lands. The BLM itself wants to change what multiple uses is also to radically transform your ability to recreate on public lands too, not just for people who graze, mine, what have you, partake in extractive activities. They're even going after your ability to recreate on public lands through undermining what is traditionally viewed as multiple use management of public lands. Let's continue what their kind of synopsis says in terms of their strategy. The blueprint presents several major shifts in how the agency prioritizes and supports outdoor recreation. BLM is committed to durable change. Keynote there. Which means we must work closely with communities and partners to respond to varying recreation opportunities and pressures. BLM federal people, not people on the ground, BLM people on the ground are great. They don't always agree with what happens federally. I don't see any stakeholder or reverence for stakeholder input except for select preferred stakeholders who are preservationist and want to push, let's say, clean energy projects. So this, to me, rings hollow and devoid of any you know, reality given what they're doing on the ground. They're coming in to rural areas where BLM land is and dictating to people what should and should be done, excluding and ignoring the opinion of stakeholders who are vested in the interests there locally. Another principle of change is a shift from reactive recreation management to a proactive report approach, reactive to proactive. Their, theirs is a reactive recreation management system. They're reacting to what their special interest groups are telling them what to do. What proactive approach emphasizing planning to address sustainable resource management needs. Importantly, the blueprint advances the department of interior equity action plan. Oh gosh, when I hear this word, I want to pull my hair out. It will offer a new path forward that promotes equitable access to outdoor recreation opportunities while conserving, protecting, and enhancing BLM's one-of-a-kind resources and experience. The blueprint will build on the prior work of the existing connecting with communities BLM recreation strategy, yada, yada, yada. Let's read more into what this Department of Interior equity plan is. And I understand some of you may be listening and thinking, oh, God, it's her conservatism coming out here. She's against equity. She must be, you know, not for outreach. I have taken many people fishing and I've introduced a lot of people to hunting through my activities, social media posts, who are vastly different from me politically, socioeconomically, racially. I love bringing new people in, but I think this is this is white knighting, especially given who is leading BLM and, and some of the others there too. You have a lot of people. This is why outdoor recreation has, for the most part, survived Kind of social transformation is because it's given how individualistic it is, we're immune to this talk of equity, fake talk of equity. And this stuff creeping in really undermines genuine outreach and advancement in making the outdoors more approachable to everyone. The outdoors is for everyone. Those who are excluding people from the outdoors have no place having a leadership role in the outdoor industry. I've made that very, very clear. People who exclude you because you don't think like them or you look differently, those people are wrongheaded. I've called them out many, many times. But this emphasis on equity, goodness gracious, It really is going to undermine the gains we've been making in the outdoor industry to reach people, new audiences, and make them feel welcome. Now, you're going to add this extra pressure politicization of the outdoors. What are they going to deem equitable access? So it has 28 pages, and I want you to read this all for yourself because I could read the whole document for you, but it's boring if I read everything. But I'm giving you guys a cliff note version of what I found that stuck out to me. However... Even though they're touting this blueprint as revolutionary and it's, you know, a reactive – we're responding to reactive recreation now promoting proactive recreation, although they're excluding people who are proactively involved in the outdoors. They don't want us – they don't want hunters and anglers as part of the equation. They've made that very clear, yet they're trying to double speak and then trying to assuage our concerns. But they say the blueprint is not a formal management plan, but rather a strategic document to guide the agency's work. Okay, so what's the point of releasing this if you're not following this? But I think that's why they're saying this now. They're caveating this because they know when more people read this, I'm going to do more deep dives into this for Independent Women's Forum and Town Hall this week. People will see this is nothing but virtue signaling. And when I was perusing through this document, I noticed there's a big emphasis on DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is a very controversial subject. It's, again, a lot of white knighting by people who feel very guilty, who don't want to leave their powerful positions, and really don't care about offering opportunities and enhancements and getting people more involved who may be from non-traditional outdoor demographics. These people talk a great game. When it time comes for them to give up their position or hand over the position, they usually don't want to give it up to someone else because they view them as a threat. Maybe they're a better sportsman or woman than them. And so this section about promoting DEI, and this is where I see ESG principles come into play. This is the S prong for sure. DEI falls under social, the social prong of ESG, environmental, social, and governance. So in, I believe it was page 13 or so, I forget the exact page, but as you peruse through this, this is what stuck out to me in terms of their DEI initiatives. The Bureau will prioritize efforts to incorporate and promote diversity in all its programs, publications, and websites, both externally and internally. To better represent all public land visitors, the BLM will expand diversity, equity, and inclusion improvements to programs, exhibits, signs, and publication at visitor centers and education facilities to better reflect the nation's diversity and to better engage underrepresented groups. How are you going to engage underrepresented groups and claim you're expanding outdoor opportunities when, again, let me reiterate, they're going to price people in many underrepresented groups from these activities by phasing out lead. They are having closures Conditioning openings on whether or not National Wildlife Refuge is band and forcing people to have bismuth or other alternatives, which are far more expensive, and many people can't afford given given inflation and what is going on. So tell me again how you are going to better engage outdoor rep- underrepresented groups when they're being priced out of these activities. Give me a break. Provide interpretation, education, and outreach materials in multiple languages Recruit an increased number of volunteers from underserved and underrepresented communities. Expand distribution of every kid outdoor passes to fourth graders. That's nothing wrong. This is fine. I don't disagree with this component. Um, and ensure recreation websites are more accessible to visitors. How are they not accessible to visitors? If you're not making your website friendly to people, what what are you doing? Okay, so that, sorry, I was supposed to read from the Department of Interior plan. Let's Let's go back to this equity plan. This was launched in April 2022. I kind of got sidetracked. My apologies. Now, what is this equity action plan from the Department of Interior, which is kind of the overarching governmental agency that oversees BLM? It outlines the department's efforts to advance equity through all its operations, remove barriers to equal opportunity, and deliver resources and benefits equitably to the general public. Secretary Deb Holland will discuss the agency's plan at the White House at 10 a.m. That was last April. So what is the the quote or rather the gist of it. The department's equity plan focuses on three areas with the potential for high equity impact contracts for businesses with characteristics that align with the definition of underserved communities. What if someone fakes that they're part of a black outdoorsman group or a native American group? There are a lot of people who are very disingenuous and pretend to be representing an underserved community. Expect a lot of corruption there. Discretionary grants to better support tribes in improving long-term sustainable development and quality of life for their members why have some Native Americans been dissed by the first Native American interior secretary when they want to develop oil and gas projects and have hunting opportunities? Definitely a point of contention there, inconsistent there, and addressing barriers to recreation on interior managed lands and water. So this is where the BLM plan derived from from this third prong. And Secretary Holland is quoted as saying, the Biden-Harris administration is mobilizing an all-of-a-government approach to advance equity and injustice Justice, excuse me, not injustice, but it could be seemed as injustice, across the federal government. As part of these efforts, the Department of Interior is implementing an ambitious agenda to center justice, equity, and inclusion in all of our work. Again, what inclusion are they really upholding? Because they're excluding stakeholders who don't agree with their preservationist agenda. Again, inclusion is very null to me. What it, it's meaningless here because they are excluding people, even their own, you know, targeted demographics especially tribal interests. They're, they're starting to ignore them as well. We must continue to proactively ensure that historically underrepresented communities benefit from our efforts to address the climate crisis, oh gosh, and make our nation's public lands and waters accessible and welcoming to everyone. I've said this before to another point I want to reiterate here on the show. You want to talk about climate, talk about it in the Department of Energy, talk about it in Congress, in that appropriate energy setting. Interior doesn't have to be Tied to climate. The fact that this administration has made everything climate really cheapens true efforts to enhance outdoor access. You don't need to slap everything with climate and say everything is climate or there's a crisis, there's this, there's that. You alienate people and you dilute your mission statement. We're going to talk about another thing that's happening as well with this. And they talk about accessibility and welcoming to everyone. They're not making it welcoming to everyone again. I've talked about this many times. Like this, this is so cheap to me that they're saying that they're making everything more equitable and inclusive and welcoming and accessible to all. Why are they charging entry fees on top of your, uh, you know, regular park entrance fees? Two dollars to do this. You have to pay a permit to hike here, go here, go there. I have talked about this before at length. Having visited many national parks, it is not making things better. And also they don't want pe- so many people coming on to federal lands. They want to keep the public off because they view it as having too much pressure, not being good, and only people who think like them really should only be the ones to access public lands. All right. So back to this equity action plan is part of get this, a day one executive order from Biden. We don't talk about these particular issues, but since this is related to it, I don't talk about, you know, social issues so much here on the podcast. I do elsewhere. But this is part of day one Executive Order 13985, Advancing Racial Equity and Support for Underserved Communities through the Federal Government, which calls on federal agencies to advance equity by identifying and addressing barriers to equal opportunity that underserved communities may face as a result of some government policies and programs. And they also were doing a DEIA Council. They launched one in February 22 as well. And this is not the. The first time we've seen kind of social engineering creep into the Department of Interior, you guys have probably heard me talk about may have seen that the Fish and Wildlife Service is also straying away from its mission statement instead of, you know, focusing on wildlife conservation efforts and much like BLM should be focusing on maintaining public lands access, multiple use. They're deviating and dabbling into these extraneous social causes that really are going to undermine their mission statement, and then it's just for them to spend more money and say, "Look at this, we achieved equity. Look at this, we achieved inclusiveness," and then they don't, because they're excluding people behind the scenes and even more outwardly with their actions. The the Fish and Wildlife Service. What point I was going with this? They were having grief counseling sessions to grieve the loss of biodiversity. Uh, in what world is that acceptable for scientists, for government stewards, for representatives? to be focusing on? Isn't your mission statement to recover delisted species, make sure that species are not threatened or endangered? Isn't your mission statement to encourage more hunters and anglers to continue Pittman-Robertson, to continue Dingle-Johnson, to make sure everyone can access public lands, not just preservationists? Why are these agencies shifting away from their intended purposes? I don't get it. I actually do get it. I'm just being rhetorical here. The social engineering and injecting extraneous social issues, causes into these agencies really must mean that morale is low in this country and they really have no respect for the people they serve. Grief counseling sessions, now DEI and ESG at these agencies, what are they spending our taxpayer money on? What are they doing to assuage the concerns of people out West who have lost faith in the BLM and subsequently Department of Interior? when they don't seek out their opinion and they just go to people who directly petition them because they support their left-wing or democratic causes, preservationist causes. This is not a way to boost morale. And again, they said it's only like a guidance document. It's not going to be policy. They say that now, but I suspect that's what they're hoping to do in the long run, to make this policy through rulemaking. But right now it's guidance. Could it be policy soon? Given what this administration does, absolutely. What's to stop them from doing this? You can read that racial equity executive order that I have alluded to. Again, this podcast doesn't dabble into this, but since it's being cited and this is where they're deriving the 21st century outdoor recreation plan from, it's important to know the source of where this emanated from. So they found like a secondary tertiary, you know, policy that gave them, granted them the license to do this, to experiment, to really, again, take this agency away from what it's supposed to be doing. And when I'm seeing this, I lose confidence in these people. I, again, have been very skeptical of their agenda and their mission, this particular administration, from the get-go. And I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt. I thought maybe they will do some good things because they can't totally radically transform BLM. But they don't care. They have an agenda. They want to go net zero. They want to remove hunters and anglers from the equation. They want to severely hamper and dampen our contributions. They think excise taxes that derive from guns and ammunition. It's blood money, things of that sort. They, are, they don't say this now, but you will see pressure from gun control groups will sell, tell them, please divorce yourself from gun manufacturers. Please divorce yourself from Pittman Robertson. And again, I think what you can take away from this plan, what I've read for you, do your own research. Don't just rely on me. But if you trust my opinion and trust my intuition, I just think this is going to set back Efforts we have made to broaden our base, to broaden our reach, to reach people from non traditional demographics, to reach out to different groups, to women, to minorities, to people who may be differently abled, and given them opportunities here. I think the best way to reach out to people, I've had phenomenal guests here who talk about the most effective outreach. I talk to people who know how to talk to different communities because I trust them better than I trust the government. And if you talk to Bethany Bethard and some of the others I've spoken to here on the show in in the course of this podcast, they should be tasked with outreach. Why isn't the BLM working with people like that who actually genuinely know what outreach is, how to reach out to people in their respective communities? Why are they trying to socially engineer and virtue signal? We don't need this whatsoever in conservation. We need meaningful outreach. And I see a lot of white knighting in this. I see a lot of wasted money and a loss of access as a result and and a lack of focus on enhancing access. Like I said, lead phase outs, closing public lands, conditioning public land openings on whether or not you phase out stuff, closing shooting sports ranges on US Forest Service, which is part of USDA, but still part of the whole plan here. And limiting opportunities and suing and settle with anti-hunting groups, doing this, doing so many different examples. The list goes on and on. Call me skeptical. I am not a fan of this plan, and I think you won't be either. All right, I got to cool down a little bit because that makes me animated. These type of topics when we see these extraneous social engineering, very politically charged elements come into conservation. I don't like that. I, I will even criticize fellow conservatives when they push divisive type of topics too, but you don't really see that so far yet, but you see it coming from the left and I got to call this stuff out to our next topic, which I think you all will find very interesting is a new study from Texas A&M that talks about a foolproof way to finally control feral hogs in the United States. And this is from Texas A&M. I spoke at Texas A&M great school, not disputing the findings of their scientists, but I'm very curious about this new study from the Texas A&M AgriLife extension service reported a new tool that has been successful in helping to reduce feral hog populations per a Thursday release from last week. And I'm reading, I believe, this is News Nation, but I believe they pulled from an Associated Press report that says that the study revealed a warfarin-based toxicant was an effective means for landowners to help minimize feral hog population sizes and damage to their crops – The hogs are responsible for millions of dollars each year in agriculture and property damages, while also negatively affecting native plant and animal species statewide. Estimates theorize that there are more than 3 million feral hogs across Texas that account for more than 500 million damages each year. Top leaders from the Department of Rangeland Wildlife and Fisheries Management and the Texas Wildlife Services led the two-year study. It analyzed 23 sites across 10 counties within various portions of the state. And according to Dr. John Tomasek, an associate professor and agrolife extension wildlife specialist, he is quoted as saying, quote, Texas A&M AgriLife extension service was tasked with evaluating the product's ability to reduce feral hog numbers and damage in regions across the state and seasons of the year. We found that it can be highly effective when utilized correctly and saw no access to the toxicant by non-target species when all feeder devices function properly. The study tracked low-dose usages of the warfarin-based toxicant in the study fields to analyze its efficacy across different Texas regions, as well as, quote, to assess the product's ability to help landowners prevent property damage and economic harm from feral hogs, per the release. I'm going to read more about this toxicant from the university and what it means, because when I hear toxicants, like, I'm skeptical. Like anything. And then I'm going to read for you a text from past guest of the show and my friend Zach Vakurovich. And I asked him this because he deals in this kind of stuff. Like, should we be scared? Should we be worried about this? And so they say the goal of the study was to conduct field evaluations of a low dose warfarin based toxicant to determine its efficacy in regions across Texas and assess the product's ability to help landowners prevent damage and economic harm from feral hogs. The press release goes on to say, The team at AgriLife Extension Specialists work with private landowners on recommended application methodologies to provide real-world testing conditions for the product and the suggested best practices. Bait that included warfarin was placed in specially designated dispensers that prevent access by non-target species. The researchers said feral hogs were conditioned to access the bait before the product was applied. Once the product was applied, feral hogs consumed lethal doses within five days of consistent access to the bait. The product is not considered acutely toxic to non-target animals eat in the event some might gain limited access to the bait, nor is it found at lethal levels within the tissue of deceased feral hogs. Correctly and consistently are the key words for effective use of warfare, and the researcher said, after a trial period of close supervision and instruction, landowners in the study applied and managed the bait themselves. During the project, Texas A&M AgriLife team made several discoveries that will help increase efficacy of the product when applied. Landowners who checked the feeder for mechanical issues and replaced bait consistently as part of the regular maintenance schedule reported sharp declines in feral hog numbers and damage levels over the seasons of the year. Landowners who did not adhere to instruction reported mixed to low success in curbing feral hog numbers on their property. These results were true regardless of the season of the year or the region of the state where the trial was conducted. I asked Zach for his professional opinion here. And he said that my guess it is some kind of bait poison that they are claiming has minimal lingering or unintentional effects when employed. I told him that sounds really kind of scary for crops. And he said that I know they were looking into sodium nitrate for a while. And he was telling me with respect to hog management, it's a double edged sword with respect to hunting and pigs. Hunting is an effective management tool, and I think I tend to err on that. But here's what he told me, and I think I need to hone on here. In order to drive more hunters into the woods, you need to make hog hunting more appealing in terms of it being a solution to mitigate and lessen the numbers. There are 6 million wild hogs across the country, as I alluded to earlier. When hog hunting gains popularity, more people start releasing hogs in areas they aren't supposed to be in order to chase them. That is why you see states banning hunting hogs. It doesn't make sense until you take a step back and realize they are trying to rid of the demand for pigs in areas that they haven't established themselves in yet. And then he said, of course, that he wants to go hog hunting. Hog hunting is great. I've gone a few times and he told me Nebraska, Kansas, Nevada, and Utah have already banned hunting pigs and maybe there are efforts underway in Wisconsin and Michigan and that uh, banning the transportation of live pigs is crucial. I didn't even know that people, I, I know this happens because there are bad actors, of course, in hunting, but they don't define the whole hunting community, so to speak. But there probably is like a black market for this, and that would severely hamper our efforts to help, you know, manage the feral hog situation here in the United States. Um, But that could certainly complicate efforts. I sent this story to Texas native Cable Smith, host of the Lone Star Outdoor Show and friend of the podcast as well. And he pointed me to an article that this has actually been tried before, and it involves the current agriculture secretary or commissioner, rather, Sid Miller. And I'm reading from the Texas Tribune, and this is from 2017, that this hog poison safeguard is not doable. And apparently this was tried in 2017. This is May 2017, when a hunter discovered that the Department of Agriculture had approved the use of a poison warfarin to control feral hogs. He had a lot of questions. The biggest was, what would happen if someone ate the meat from wild hog, wild pig that had consumed it? This gentleman operates a hog hunting business on 3,000 acres in northeast Texas. He regularly sends the meat of pigs they kill home with his clients. When he couldn't find answers online, he called the agriculture department. To his surprise, he got a return call from Commissioner Sid Miller, who I actually will meet in a couple weeks. I may ask him about this. Who assured the business person that the poison would be safe for humans and other wildlife and directed him to a Facebook page for more information about the poison that's marketed under the name Kaput. When the individual found the product's label, he was so alarmed that he called the state representative. He is quoted this gentleman by the last name of Honeycutt. That label didn't look anything like what the man, Commissioner Miller, told me on the phone. I thought, my God, that can't be right. People can't eat this. He said, how in the world can you put something in the human food chain that can kill somebody to kill an animal that people eat? When he went to Austin, Texas to meet with Gary Van Deaver, Representative Gary Van Deaver, so he addressed his concerns in person again from 2017. The commissioner responded to the safety concerns by saying that his agency could change the poison's federally approved label to eliminate an important warning as well as a requirement to bury the carcasses of poison hogs, which Miller said simply wasn't doable. That product label there says all animals, every one of them has to be recovered and put 18 inches under the ground. How could, what, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to find all of them? And here's more into the conversation. Animals that feed on these carcasses are going to die. It can kill them. Whether you say it or not, this label says it will. We can adjust that too, reported Commissioner Miller. Do, 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 do. So apparently it was very contentious per this report that the agriculture commissioner walked out. Mr. Honeycutt said that the commissioner wasn't really listening to him, that he had his mind made up. And he had a dog and pony show that he's been putting on the whole time. I'm not sure if Commissioner Miller's opinion has been changed on this. So they have been deliberating this before. And again, I'm not a scientist, so I can't surmise like if this is good or not. But I think there is a lot of doubt and questioning over whether or not this can be utilized. Do you use a low dosage, high dosage? Is it viable for, you know, wide use application? Can it work in every state where there is a feral hog problem? That remains to be seen. But I love pointing out these curious studies and type of different, you know, news items for you to be aware because people are going to default to something other than hunting. I think that's what they're looking to do. It's a way to spend more taxpayer money, get grants to fund these projects. That's usually what's at the root of You know, these initiatives, I still think hunting is a viable thing. I don't want to see a market created for this and feral hogs come into states where they're not already at. I don't want people to put them here deliberately in Virginia because we do have some problems. Although I would love to go hog hunting, but that's not me wish casting that they are here. And I can always go to different states where they are a problem like South Carolina. And I may do that when I go there for our POMA annual conference next year, hoping to do some hog hunts there because they have a very bad hog problem. But we will continue to see what happens with this because this is the first of my attention because, you know, you see proposals like to cull deer overpopulation, you need to sterilize them or you need to like perform vasectomies or hysterectomies on them. And I don't think that's conducive and it hasn't shown to work. So landowners, please approach us hunters. We would love to help you solve your hog problem. Doesn't matter when, where you tell us the time, the place we will be there. But of course, we want to deter bad actors from inviting more uh, hog hunting than is already necessarily needed or wanted. We do have a plentiful amount of hogs. Let's not create more of a situation. I think Zach's caution is correct. But of the existing feral hog situation, please ranchers and farmers, I would be more than happy to come. If you are you know, in the Southeast, I can make a drive from Virginia. Happy to help you manage your hog situation. I've done it before in Georgia. I would be happy to come to Texas wherever is needed, and I know hundreds of thousands of other hunters like me, millions in fact, would love to help you manage your hog situation. So that is what I think of this story. Very important to talk about as it starts to probably bleed more into the news and news cycle. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people, and I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners, and we have just hit 1,000 followers on Instagram for the podcast account Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I am all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.